Psalm 50. The Mighty One, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before him, and around him a tempest rages. He summons the heavens above and the earth, that he may judge his people. Gather to me my consecrated ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice, and the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings which are ever before me. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my laws or take my covenant on your lips? You hate my instruction and cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you join with him. You throw in your lot with adulterers. You use your mouth for evil and harness your tongue to deceit. You speak continually against your brother and slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I kept silent. You thought I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and accuse you to your face. Consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces with none to rescue. He who sacrifices thank offerings honors me, and he prepares the way so that I may show him the salvation of God. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for bringing us uh, together this morning, and I pray now that you would speak to each one of your children this morning. Father, I don't know everyone here, but uh, you do, and you know what each one needs to hear. So I pray that you would minister by your spirit through your word to speak to your children, to bless them with your truth and your grace and your love. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a real privilege to be back here and to see you all. I understand it's it's the camp out weekend, so you guys are all the people who are a little too civilized to sleep in the dirt, I guess. So it's, it's uh, good to be here. Want to look at Psalm 50. It's a psalm where God comes down. Am I? Okay. God, God comes down to his people, his consecrated ones, his covenant people, the people who belong to him, the people who he loves. And he says, you know, I've gotten, I desire nothing more than to show you my love my care and my affection. But you've got to realize, he says to his people, there's two things that are keeping you from experiencing the relationship with you that I want to give you. 
There's two things that keep you from experiencing my love and my grace the way I want to show it to you, God says. And those two things are your sin and the fact that you're ignoring me on the one hand, and the other is your righteousness and your sacrifices and the fact that you think I owe you something. And so God comes to correct both of these errors at the same time so that his people can have a relationship with you with him. And these are really two sides of the same coin, two ways that our hearts are driven to try to find independence from God and autonomy from his grace and his love. First, let's look at how we hide from God and try to hide our sin from God. In verses 16 through 21, he talks to one group of people and he says, you keep company with adulterers, you throw in your lots with those who are thieves, and you participate in gossip and lying. He's talking about you know, the basic violations of the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments. Adult, don't, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie. And he's saying, you guys are doing that, and yet you're living and acting and worshiping as if you're my covenant people. You're acting as if you're participation in worship, you're going to the temple, you're offering your sacrifices and so forth, it makes the fact that you're living in violation of my law irrelevant. And God's saying to him, you know, I see that, I know that, and the way you live your personal life is just as important to me as the way you live your religious life. And I think that's important for all of us to understand, because one of the dangers when when you start to become active in your faith, you start to go to Bible studies, you start to go to church, you become a member of a church, you start volunteering for various things, is you're, you're going along in that in a while, and then you start to fall, and you start to slip into various sins, to throw in your lot with the adulterers, as he says here, to get involved in dishonesty, or to start using words in a way that is, uh, that is hurtful to others. And and as you start to do that, for a while, I'm, one thing I've noticed in my own life is, as a pastor, is for a while you can fake it. For a while you can continue to show up for church, continue to help lead worship, continue to help with the setup or teaching the kids, and, and nobody really knows what's going on in your private life, and you can, and, and you can make things work. What the Bible says is, God sees, God knows where we're going. God knows how we live seven days a week, and he's concerned with all seven days, not just the Sunday morning where you show up at worship, and that's actually keeping you from an encounter with him. Perhaps one of the most dramatic illustrations of this in the Bible is the life of King David. You know the story. King David was the the chosen king of Israel. He established Jerusalem. He was chosen as the one through whom the Messiah would come to save the world. And he he led Israel to success and prosperity. And then just when he had kind of reached the pinnacle of his career, one day, you know the story, he had an affair with one of his best friend's wives. And then he said, oh, I'm the king. I got to cover this up. And so he had his best friend or his good friend Uriah the Hittite murdered. And then he just went on editing the book of Psalms, being the king of Israel, and doing all the things that that kings were supposed to do as if nothing had happened until 
the prophet Nathan came and exposed him and confronted him. And that was, David came to recognize that was God's mercy on him, that he didn't allow him to continue to be a predator, that he didn't allow him to continue to abuse his power, didn't allow him to continue to lie, but forced him to confront his failure and his sin and his his violation of the trust that the people and that God had placed on him. And it's God's mercy on us as well when he brings conviction to us or when he brings exposure to us because that's how we get to a place where we can actually encounter him, where we can actually have a relationship with him. So it seems obvious, and it's the kind of thing you'd expect to hear, that our sin is going to keep us from knowing God's love, keep us from knowing God's presence, keep us really from knowing God's grace. But there's a flip side to that to that coin, and the flip side is simply this. The other thing that keeps people like you and me from knowing God and from experiencing love, his love and experiencing his grace is our religion and our righteousness. Look at verses 17 through 15. He says, I don't rebuke you for your sacrifices, which you bring, but I, for they are ever before me. I have no need for a bull from your stall or goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't even need to tell you. He's reminding the people that though it's well and good that they bring the sacrifices, they don't bring the sacrifices to the temple because God needs their sacrifices. They bring their sacrifices to the temple because they need God. And that's the important thing for all of us to remember. We don't come to church. We don't participate in our faith. We don't serve God because in some way God needs our help, but we do it because we need him. And I think there's a temptation for the children of God. It's a temptation for Christians as we become more active in our faith and we start making decisions to serve more, to give more of our time, to give more of our money, to give more of our energy, to give more of our talents to the service of God, to the work of God in our local church or in other ministries or, or maybe even just in helping out our friends and our neighbors in various ways and, and we develop a heart for these things. It becomes something of a burden and we start to feel self-righteous about it, like, look at what I've given to God. Look at the way I've sacrificed for God. Look at the the service I'm offering up to God. Doesn't God see this? Doesn't he recognize this? Doesn't he recognize that all the good that I've done for him? And that was the problem that a lot of the people of Israel fell into as they tried to comply with the book of Leviticus, the book of Deuteronomy, and all of the rules about sacrifices that they were supposed to bring on special days and special occasions and bring to the temple and bring to other places, that that as they focused on all of those rules, as they focused on offering all of those sacrifices and 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 offering all that service and complying with all those laws, that somehow they missed the purpose of those sacrifices, the purpose of those laws, which was to bring them into God's presence and to bring them into a relationship with God. 
And God corrects him. He says, you know, this is kind of a famous verse. Perhaps you've heard it before. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for I have no need of a bull from your stall or goats from your pens. Verse 10, for every animal of the forest is mine, and I own the cattle on a thousand hills. What's he reminding the people of is that God doesn't need their sacrifices to accomplish his work. God doesn't need their service to do the things that he plans to do. God doesn't even need our obedience. He doesn't need anything from us because he's God. He's all sufficient in and of himself. And when we offer these things, it's they're offered up out of our faith and commitment to him. And there's a danger for all of us, a danger for you church people who are here today that you think, well, the fact that I showed up in church, the fact that I volunteered in this ministry, the fact that I gave my offering, used my gifts, whatever it is I did, those are the basis of my relationship with God. And I've fulfilled my obligation to him. And the danger is that in doing that, you miss his love. You miss his grace. And you miss your personal encounter with the all-sufficient, all-powerful God who is there. See, just as much, just as certainly as our sin and our secrets can hide us from God, our righteousness and our sacrifice and our services can keep us from God if they, if we allow them to become a burden and we presume on those things in and of themselves. So, What's the third way? I think God gives us a picture of what he actually wants from us here, the essence of what he wants from us in verse 14. I think this, is, this, this verse kind of does sum it up in a way. It says, sacrifice thank offerings to me, fulfill your vows to the Most High, and call on me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will honor me. That's what God wants from us. Let me just break that down for you, and we'll, we'll just do it backwards. First thing God wants from us is that we call on him in the day of trouble. Well, actually, the last thing there, but the first thing I want to mention, we call on him in the day of trouble. What God wants us to bring to him, God wants you to bring to him your troubles. God wants you to bring to him your worries. And there's a couple reasons for that. One of the things that I've recognized in my own life and in working with other people is that sometimes it's our troubles, our pain, our losses, and our struggles that we find ourselves in. On the one hand, those those are really areas that can pull us into sin. The anxiety or the pain or the difficulty we're facing is it can be can become occasions for God's children to fall away from him in a sense. And and God says, you need to bring me your troubles, not try to solve them on your own, not let them th- throw you into anxiety or despair, but bring them to me. And another one part of it is that God really wants an intimate relationship with you. And and those of you who are parents, you know, or those of you who are married or even even with close friends, you know that when you're when something's bothering your kid or when something's bothering your spouse or when someone's, something's bothering a really close friend of yours, one of the things you want them to do is to tell you. 
Have you ever had the frustration in, in a relationship where someone was really bothered by something, by something that was going on in their life and they just wouldn't talk to you about it? And you, you thought to yourself, well, you know, we've known each other. You know, I'm committed to you. You know, I care about you. Why won't you tell me what's really bothering you? Have you ever felt that, that struggle? Not, not your head if you felt that struggle in a, in a relationship before. But that's what God is saying here. He says, call on me in the day of troubles. What do I want you to do with your troubles? First and foremost, bring them to me. What's the basis for us experiencing God's love and power in our life? When we bring our troubles to him first and foremost. Uh, you know, it's great to bring your sacrifices. It's great to bring your service. It's great to bring your gifts, but also bring your troubles to him. That's what he wants. And then he says, secondly, fulfill your vows to me. And this sounds, I know when we talk about fulfilling vows, in a sense it sounds archaic and you think of Old Testament stuff, but at another level, it's for us in the church today, in this church today, our vows are the essence, are a summary of our faith. If you've become a member of this church, you've taken membership vows, right? Some of you, raise your hand if you've taken membership vows here. A couple of you? Okay. Well, that's I won't go go through those, but if you can comply with those membership vows, you're living the Christian life in a sense. And if you've baptized a baby, I, I, there's lots of kids here, so I assume many of them have been baptized. And but if you, when you bring your child to be baptized, you take baptismal vows as parents, right? Some of you have taken those. Nod your head if you've taken those 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 vows. Okay. If you comply with those. You're doing what God wants you to do as a Christian parent. You know, if you guys have taken the leap and gotten married, you've taken wedding vows, presumably. And I I mean, I know there's all kinds of creative wedding vows out there, but I don't let people do those when I when I do weddings. uh, If you take the traditional wedding vows and, and and you comply with those in your life, you've done your duty in terms of in terms of your marriage. And uh, I know some of you are in various ministries, your elders, your deacons in this church or in other ministries, and there's vows associated with that. And if you keep those vows, you keep those promises, you, you've done your duty as a elder, as a, as a deacon in the church. See, what God wants from us in terms of our life is faithfulness. If we can live a faithful life, a life fulfilling our vows, then he'll take care of the results, the Bible says. And so he says, bring your troubles to me, keep your vows, live live a faithful life, and then then thirdly, he says, sacrifice thank offerings or offerings of thankfulness. And what, what, what he means by that is to remember that all of the sacrifices you bring, when you sacrifice your time, when you sacrifice your energy, when you sacrifice your money for the work of the kingdom, for, in the Old Testament when they brought the, the bulls and the goats and, and the chickens and everything else for their sacrifices, they weren't by their sacrifices earning their status before God. They weren't by their sacrifices meriting or purchasing God's favor or God's love. They were bringing their sacrifices because they knew they already had God's love. Those offerings were, as he says here, thank offerings. 
In other words, they were just returning to God a small portion of what God had already given to them. And when we serve, when we sacrifice, when we give, all we're doing as Christians is recognizing the fact that 100% of everything we have, every talent we have, every, ever, all the strength that we have, all the resources we have, all of it comes from God and from God alone. And so when we give a couple hours or we give a couple dollars or we give of our talents and our abilities, all we're doing is giving back to God a token amount that shows or reflects the fact that everything we have ultimately came from him. And we can never, ever give back to him as much as he has given him. As we begin to understand this, we begin to, in our lives, experience God's grace and God's love. When we realize that 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 a generous gift of time or talent or resources to to God is is really just a token of the fact that everything he has given us, then as we give our experience of his love, our experience of his grace, our experience of his generosity towards us becomes more real and more vital and more empowering to us. And that's that's what God wants us to do. See, there's a real danger there's a real danger for us when we start to live a righteous life. And it is simply this, that we'll start to presume that, well, the fact that I've kicked all these sins I used to indulge in it is true means that I'm now someone who is superior and merit, deserves God's favor. There's a real danger when we start to live a religious life. We say the fact that I never miss church anymore means that now somehow... I've come to a place where, where I'm special in God's eyes. There's a danger in a life of service when we start to think, think to ourselves, well, look at all I've given. Look at, look at the time and the energy I've put in. Now God needs to do something for me. God needs to start solving my problems on my schedule. There's a danger in a life of sacrifice when we start saying, look at the sacrifices I've made for my faith. Now, how come God hasn't done more for me? Unless those things are done out of a sense of thanksgiving, out of sense of gratitude, unless they're all thank offerings, they're actually dangerous. They can actually be counterproductive to your personal experience of God's grace and God's love and God's power. So if we want to meet God, what do we need to bring? If you want to have an experience of God, if you want more of God's power in your life, you know what you need to bring? You need to bring your sin to God. There's a reason why when we come to church, we part of our service is the prayer of confession. It's because it's when we confess our sins and we bring our sins to God, that's when we actually experience his grace and his presence in our lives, right? That's when we realize that his love is a gift, not something we earn, not something that we deserve. So we bring our sin to God and we experience his grace. We bring, we, we bring not our religion to God, but we bring our doubts to God and he 
reveals himself to us, like the man who came to Jesus and, and Jesus said the man's son was demon-possessed and he said, well, if you believe, anything's possible. And the man said, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And he was given reason to believe because Jesus healed his sons. We don't bring our sacrifices, our gifts to God. We bring our dependence. We bring our poverty to God. And as we bring our poverty to God, he gives us the kingdom of heaven. So that's what God wants us to bring to him. And as we bring that, we begin to experience his his presence. In the very next psalm, in Psalm 51, verse 16, David puts it this way. You know, David realized he didn't really know God's love until after he was confronted with his sin with Bathsheba and after he was restored through the prophet Nathan. And he says this in, in Psalm 51, verse 16, the sacrifice that God requires of me is a broken and contrite heart. He says, God doesn't delight in sacrifices because then I would bring it. If God said to me, well, the way you can atone for your adultery and your murder is sacrifice 10,000 bulls and goats, David would have done that. He would have said, okay, now I'm clear. But God said, no, there is nothing you can do, David. And when David the king, David the giant slayer, realized there was nothing he could do to atone for his sin, he experienced God's grace. Someone has said that all you need to experience God's grace is nothing. And the reason you haven't experienced God's grace is because you keep insisting on bringing something. Get to the place where nothing in your hands you bring than simply to the cross you can cling. Finally, here in in Psalm 50, he says, look at the very last verse. He says, he who sacrifices thank offerings honors me and he prepares the way so that that I can show him the salvation of God. This psalm was written more than 900 years before Jesus came. But he was saying, even in this psalm, get ready. I'm going to show you something, something that will be amazing. I'm going to show you the salvation of God. And the salvation of God came through the Son of David, our Lord Jesus Christ, And it was in a manner and in a sense that they never could have anticipated, that they never would have drawn up on their, on their own. No, no prophet, no writer of scripture anticipated that Yahweh would become a baby and be born in Bethlehem because of Caesar Augustus' decree. Nobody drew that up. No, No Jew who had studied the scriptures, who had searched the scriptures, understood or believed that the Messiah would come and be despised and rejected by his people and crucified on the cross. By definition, a crucified Messiah to them was a failed Messiah. And yet, he was the ultimate and final atonement for our sins. No one understood or believed that he was going to be able to do something so spectacular as rise from the dead on the first Easter and conquer sin and death for us. No one believed that. Nobody understood that. Nobody was expecting that, including his own disciples. Even though he told them multiple times that that was what he was going to do, they didn't understand it. And yet that is how he came 
and showed his salvation. 900 years before Christ, the psalmist wrote, wait for the salvation of God. To us, 2,000 years after Christ, the psalmist says to you and me, look back to the salvation of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the final sacrifice. He is the ultimate servant. He won the powerful victory over the brokenness of this world, over sin and death. And all I want you to do is trust in him, wait for him, and find your rest in him and in him alone. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your salvation incarnate in Jesus. Forgive us for our sin. Forgive us for the presumption in our righteousness that keeps us from experiencing his grace. Father, open our hearts to bring to you our troubles, to bring to you our failures, to bring to you our fears, so that through that and in that, we can experience your redemption and your restoration. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.